Hi, everyone. I'm Kimberly Kane, and welcome back to Empowered. Today, I'm sitting down with The View's Sarah Haynes. That's right, Sarah Haynes from The View. We had a great conversation talking about her life, her journey with her career, what parenting has been like. She has three kiddos, and we talked about a mantra that has guided her throughout her career, both personally and professionally. I know you'll enjoy this one. Thank you so much for being with us on this episode of Empowered. It is great to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me and being persistent. I respect it. (laughs) You got it. Got to go reporter on people. Tell us where you're joining us from. Where are you right now? So right now I'm in my dressing room slash office at The View. So it's probably a little cluttered, lots of random pictures, makeup, hair extensions, and shows. (laughs) All of the things you need to just be beautiful and do your job. And nothing that would be in my own room (laughs) when left to myself. (laughs) So I have been following your career since probably 2016, right? That's when you started with The View. And it's been an amazing journey. The View and GMA as a reporter and an anchor and back to The View. Maybe you can start, Sarah, by telling us just a little bit about who you are and what is it that made you passionate about going into a career in journalism. I feel like in some ways where I ended up uh, at The View in television hosting personality based type of roles was maybe always the end game, but I had a different way of getting there. I never chose to get into journalism. I ended up getting into the NBC page program. And because I had Uh, I was going to let myself finally pursue comedic acting because I'd always um, lived by the book, the plan A, third child of four. I'm I'm the safety girl. I don't take risks. I'm going to do it all by the book. So I thought if I joined this page program because I majored in government and I, I went to Smith College. So the majority of my classes were a combination of government, religion, theater. It was a hodgepodge. I thought, I have to learn this business I want to get into because I don't know anything. So I did the PAGE program to give me insight into a very broad idea of what the business was, which is ultimately the first job I got out of that was at the Today Show in operations. All of these were meant to be my day job that paid my bills, uh, paid for my acting classes, all those things. But I was just a sponge at learning everything. Who did what? differences between live and long form. I happened to be in news the whole time without having a deep passion for journalism. I'm normally someone consuming the news. I can relate much more to that than being any part of the news. So I don't even consider myself, although I've learned journalism along the way, I don't call myself a journalist. I call myself a storyteller because I've always been here more for the human connection with people not the information, not the data, the journey, and kind of reaching out and hopefully someone reaches back and connecting over what we have in common and continuing to do that. I love the performance aspect a bit when you're the nerves, the adrenaline, you know, it reminds me of performing, but I never really got those acting jobs. So I've taken that public speaking improv and brought it to information and hosting and opinions and unscripted. So it makes sense I ended up here, but I didn't really take the steps that would normally lead one to be here, if that makes sense. And that's the adventure we call life, right? 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about your day-to-day on The View and the strong voice that you have today. You grew up in Iowa. And yes. and today you're in New York City. I read about you. You talked a little bit about having grown up in a fairly conservative family in, in Iowa. Take us just a little bit through that journey from growing up in Iowa, fairly conservative family, to where you are today. My family wasn't just conservative. They're very traditional in in. in every way that you can interpret that. I ended up getting into Smith College, which was an abrupt left turn for them. I wanted, I wasn't looking for the liberal institution that Smith is. I knew I wanted to go to the school school in the Northeast where my mom had always said was the heart of academics because she was from a very poor family in Kansas. And so I had my eye on the region and I knew I wanted it to be small because I was an athlete and I learned better in environments where I can be front of the class. My big sister had gone to the University of Iowa and she was a number in a stadium seating class. And I thought, that's not me, I'll get lost. So I knew with all these things, because I wanted to play sports in college, just so I had something staying the same, even though I was literally going halfway across the country to a place that was very different from anything I'd been at before. Um, So I honed in and when I got into Smith, I didn't even comprehend how laughable that was considering my family. So in that journey, as I kind of, I was always the people-pleasing third child that showed up with A's to say, look, look, you know, this is how I'm going to be loved and approved. I'm going to do this. So when I started kind of breaking that metaphorical umbilical cord with who I was underneath all of it, do I agree with this? I say these things, but do I say it because my mom and dad say it? You know, I started to kind of find my way, which I think is probably the number one defense of going to college is that baby step to being on your own and growing up, not just the academics. Um, And then I really, I don't think I changed my views. I think I found my views um, that were always in there. And so many that I had thought about before. And I was a female athlete. So a lot of my friends happened to be gay. And my brother comes out to me because he's like, Sarah's so open-minded. And I'm like, open-minded, what? Like he, but the whole story, I was like this, completely like archetype to what my family had been. And I think in my family, I'm very liberal. In the world, I'm actually pretty moderate left-leaning. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I always say college wasn't my happy memories everyone has about they're the best years. I worked my butt off to hang with people that were so academic, but also manage schedules like the, I played volleyball and basketball. And I wanted something that looked the same in Iowa as it did in Massachusetts. So that athletic pursuit was not because I was ever going to make bank doing it. It was because I knew how to play in a jersey. And that was the one thing that was familiar. So in doing kind of um, all of that, I I came home a very different person. <laughs> and um, according to my parents, but how did your parents handle that? You come home, you know, you've been away in Massachusetts, which is so far away from Iowa. How did they handle the Sarah who came home a different person? Part of what college did for me, and really it wasn't as much the college or the institution. It was the separation from my family. They didn't hold me close, but I was one of those kids that held them close. So that forced geographical separation and emotional mental separation had me questioning things like, for example, when you go away to college, I started to think about sexuality and things like, how do I know 
what I am, if I might be just doing what everyone else does. And I started to bring those thoughts home, which was just hilarious, because I always say my parents knew one of their kids was gay. They just thought it was me. And it ended up being my brother. (laughs) But I remember questioning so much. um, I really wanted to come home to a place that we could have robust conversations because I was I, I was so curious. It was so, you know, enriching. And I remember once telling my mom something about the Bible and I was telling her in this class that was about the different interpretations when you keep translating the Bible and how it can mean something so different in this. And I remember her looking at me and she said, we didn't send you to Smith College to question your religion. And I remember kind of being taken aback, like, why did you send me then? Because this was not a linear next step for all that you stand for. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think that college point, what I didn't finish before was like uh, pulling taffy. It was, those years were some of the hardest in my life. I I mentally discovered I struggled with some things. I separated from my family. I didn't recognize myself or where I fit, like so many do. But college to me was that imperative step. It wasn't the clean step everyone talks about and loves and reminisces about. I don't feel any of those things, but it was that necessary dark tunnel to get me to where Sarah is. Like, where was she inside of me? Yeah. My dad used to talk about college as a great place to grow up in. And, you know, the way you're describing it really, really resonates because you are taking that big break from your family. You're seeing the world on your own for the first time. It can be frightening, but exhilarating at the same time. Talk about this word perfection in your life and how you confronted this word and what you found on the other side. We always joked in my family that I was a perfectionist and we threw around the term lightly as I had behaviors that were emblematic of something beyond perfectionism, like measuring how far apart hangers were and not wanting a white hanger and a brown hanger to be next to each other. And like, so I, at a very young age, started to have these behaviors that were kind of excused as cute or that's so Sarah. Mm -hmm. And what no one realized is that it, it was actually a prison of sorts. I wouldn't have known what it was. I knew I was uncomfortable at times, but when I got into high school, I remember a term paper I had to write writing's difficult for perfectionists Mm -hmm. because writing's difficult period but if you keep stopping yourself it's like learning a language also something I attempted if you don't know it perfectly you don't want to do it so it becomes paralyzing I remember a term paper where I thought if I got hit and no joke this is an awful thing but I thought if I got hit by this train that was going by the taco johns I was eating in would I have to turn this paper in because I could not perfect the process so I kept bumping into this perfectionism all all the way to having my kids. And it was with my first uh, baby, my son, where it reached a head. Because I think a lot of women in postpartum, I think there's a, a staggering percentage that have anxiety. Um, and I, when you already have that, it spikes to noticeable levels. That was the first time I got help with it. And that's when I embraced this mantra of good enough. I had to be able to let go. And in some of the therapy I was doing, I had to go against my urges to perfect because I was trying to find safety and perfection. If I do this, everything will be okay. And that's just not the case. Mm -hmm. So I had to start undoing my perfectionism. And being a parent has been the boot camp of good enough. If perfection's the goal, you might as well quit now because there's, there's, it's not possible. We're all imperfect. The job you learn on the job, each kid is different. The the enormity of humiliate like hum, humility in this uh, 
process is just um, unreal. So I've had to really hold on to that. And there are days I have to say it out loud. When I finish a day, I have to say, okay, okay. And I want to check things. I want to get back in there. And I'm like, Sarah, good enough. And it's become applicable to every single thing in my life. Yeah. You know, in the world that you live in, if you will, the world that you work in, there is so much pressure on women, especially to achieve levels of perfection. Um, you know, do you kind of look at how women, are, you know, are confronting these levels of perfection and, you know, really try to distance yourself from that so that you can really embrace what good enough means for Sarah? How do how do you do that? Because the pressure is so enormous. Well, one, whether it's a personal connection with someone um, that I'm crossing paths with, if it's professional, whatever it is, when I find people that present as perfect, I usually know that might not be my place to turn because I gravitate at a birthday party with kids to my job when I'm having conversations to my friends that I pick that if you come if you come out of the gates with a certain vulnerability you're my people mm-hmm. and I know you're you, you've been honest with yourself which means you can be honest with me so it's not that I have negative feelings but I've I've seen too much to go backwards so if someone comes off, um, you know, and especially once I've put my vulnerabilities out of there, giving them permission to join me, if they continue to, to blockade, which I have some close people in my life that do, I recognize that th- we're just not at the same place in the journey. And that's not where I turn for solace, information, advice, really anything. Well, and, you know, being in the world of TV news, being a talk show host, uh, in, and you have had so many great career stops. You know, taking a look at, uh, you know, the work you've done with GMA, you have a podcast, um, The Chase as well. You know, sometimes I imagine you feel a little bit like a bumper car, right? Because the expectations are so high where you're going, your expectations for yourself are so high. You know, take us through some of the kind of the challenges that you've experienced in your career and how you have found your way to that next stop. Well, some of the the biggest challenges I found found along the journey kind of creating my career was the no. People saying no, not getting the job. Um, You know, rejection is endless. But beyond that, when I was auditioning, it also came in the form of the work I was doing. I was trying to learn how to do interviews, doing digital content and things on the side with my access as a Today Show employee and having worked there for many years, people knew I was good for it and I would try to create things. I found I bumped into so many walls where they said, no, we're not going to put this on the website. No, we're not going to, you know, uh, let you have access to those celebrities. No, we're not going to do this. So I, because I loved the work so much, I was like, all I have to do is have a spot to land and I don't really care who's watching. So when they said you can't be on the website, I said, went to the marketing department of NBC and said, what about the Facebook page? You don't really have inside access. You guys shoot it from away and promos. But what about behind the scenes interviews? It was a time when the Today Show page had one page for all four hours and I think they had 200 friends. So it was early and I didn't care. I didn't care who saw it. I just wanted a reason and a purpose to do the work. And I was doing it around my job. So I was coming in early, editing and staying late. But it was the part that fueled all the 12 hours in between because it was finally what I wanted to do, not just my paycheck. And then when they said, you can't have access to these celebrities, and it was like someone would have that job and say yes to me, the next person would say no. And I thought, oh. So after I crumpled up and cried, I'd stand back up again and I'd say, 
okay, well, in Iowa, we don't know what these hairstylists are doing. We don't know what, when Chris Brown rolls in, like I read it in People magazine, but what does that look like in print? Let's interview the bodyguard, Big Pat. Like, that's cool. There are people that don't need the the best part that they see on TV. They want the imperfect YouTube angles. They want to see it. So I was like, we'll just do that. Like, no was never going to stop me because the high I was getting from the work was okay, well, then we'll just try another door. Like, we'll just try something else. And because I always had a few people with me that were that passionate, we just kept trying different ways. See, I I love that. So you're seeing the solution. You're seeing the opportunity on the other side of no. And for so many people, no means no, and they go in a different direction. Have you always been that way? You know, at what point do you start planning what is on the other side of no if you're running into a hurdle? I don't know if I've always been that way because if I described myself, I wasn't a pioneer of risk-taking. I always say I admire entrepreneurs because they're ideas people. They're, don't don't make me color in the box. I'll create a new shape altogether. Like I've got ideas. I'm a great soldier. I am so supreme as the second person on down. (laughs) I will take your orders. I will be proactive. I will be problem solving, but I'm not a creator. So I think that a lot of that started specifically in those that decade of my 20s as I was building this, mainly because along the way there was a lot of dead spots where, you know, in when I rewrite history or someone tells my story, they say, oh, and you were busy going to acting and getting your headshots and do, and I'm like, yeah, and there were swaths of five and six months where I was barely getting up and putting my clothes on because I was not feeling that great and not feeling motivated and trying to maybe meet friends or go out or meet a partner or... I still played volleyball through my 20s in the city. So I was I was playing on a gay volleyball league. But I mean, like all the things I wanted to do get in the way of that dream. And then I'd come back to the worst thing for me would to have been to come here, do the page program, the Today Show and never have really tried because you can tick things off the box. But if you've never really felt that guttural feeling of, oh, I just went for it. I was doing the dance around going for it. I was checking the little things off. They were easy. They weren't risky. I'd get in a rut and then I'd come back around and check a little thing off, but I wasn't doing it. And I think the regret of not having done it when I'd spent years in a city, I'm not a city person. I'd come and gotten close, so close. I'd worked in the SNL studios where my dream of sketch comedy was right in front of me. I walked by Matt Lauer and uh, Katie Couric and Meredith Vieira. I was so close, but I was like a kid with my hands on the window. And I thought, because I'm more scared of not having tried, I've got to have a bookend to what I started. And that's what probably was the gas in the tank. Yeah, yeah. And that is such a great quote right there, because I was so afraid of having not tried, you know, that is a gas. And and I think we all need to bottle that up. I mean, you feel it in your gut, right? It's, you know, you come to the door, you're about to knock on it and you go, ah, but I'm afraid. What do you have to lose? Just, you know, go for it. (laughs) Yeah. And look where you are today. I mean, take us through just what is a day, you know, in the life of Sarah Haynes on The View? What, What does that look like for you? So The View so far has been my favorite job when it comes to schedule and the the excitement. I'm a morning person, so I wake up, uh, and you can tell me if I'm being too detailed or not detailed enough, but I hop out of bed, usually see the kids a little, one to three of them. They're not always up. Um, my husband's usually up, too, and we're kind of like throwing food at kids, and then I leave first, so I'm out the door. 
I'm prepping from the point I head out the door because I finally can read an article without being interrupted. Um, and I prep the whole way to the show. And then we, I right away plop in a makeup chair where we have our, if, while I'm getting my makeup done, the meetings all around me. So now we're sussing through topics. Like we had been given ideas the night before. We had all thrown in our two cents about what we think the lead should be. If there's a lighter story, something, we're all chiming in. Once I get with my hair and makeup done, we've now usually decided on the topics. I have about an hour with my producer to bang through um, where I, my take on the topic, what I want to mention. And um, it's tricky at times because a lot of it's redundant with politics. And so a part of me always takes this chair and the honor and privilege so seriously that I'm like, I don't want to regurgitate. I don't want to be the fifth voice saying the same thing. Like, is there a funny angle? Is there tw Twitter memes? Is there a new it, new way into this? Is, you know, or always through the personal lens of, I'm tired of talking about this. You know, even that's a take. So we do that up until the show. And then when the show's done, there's always usually a couple things, whether it's a podcast interview like this. We also have a show podcast. Uh, anything I need to do in the city with meetings or shoots, I do right after work so I can then head home. And usually I'm home, and that's the best part of this schedule. I can be there on days where I can do school pickup. And I already feel at times like an imposter mom, which I would, if I were telling my best friend, I would say that's not the case. But I miss out on a lot when it comes to participating in the school because it's a lot of things during the school day. It's mornings. So I take those opportunities where I feel like a normal mom very energetically and excitedly. So I get a little time with the kids. I also try to, working out is huge for me, mainly for my mental health. So I try to bang that workout, whether it's pickup first, workout or workout pickup, I try to do it as soon as I get in the door so I don't talk myself out of it. And then I try to finish as many things as I can before all the kids are home and we're all there by ourselves at six. And that's when I'm usually covering for my husband now. He covers mornings. I go late in the evenings. And I really take that hour so the kids are still up as like, put my phone down, try. Like, I, I don't want to sound like a perfect example because there are days where it's dinging and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm numbing again. But for the most part, I try to set it down. It's usually chaotic. The kids are very close in age. So there's, it always starts out with these idyllic ideas of us drawing together or like, maybe we'll do this. And then soon there's like one kid body slamming the other. Everyone's crying. I'm yelling. And I promised tonight I was not going to yell. And, you know, but then you put them to bed and you say, it was good enough. My effort was a hundred percent. My execution was good enough. And we'll try it again tomorrow. We made it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it surprised me when you and I first talked, going back to the you and I want to talk about motherhood in a minute. You don't get to coordinate before you go on. So you are prepping with your producer, researching, reading while you're getting hair and makeup. But you have no idea what the other co-hosts on The View are going to say. No, the only thing you ride on is your ideas predicting what they'll say in knowing them. There are certain topics where you know someone's going to go in hard on something and you're kind of anticipating because some of the work you do, the conversation may not even go there. Mm -hmm. So you've now spun your wheels to try to anticipate not only what your take is, but countering if someone pushes back you know, and why, who's going to probably push back and what you need, what survey you've heard them quote three times or, or poll. And you're like, let's get the most updated one and remind them that there's a new poll that's, you know, like, so it's a little bit of a, 
a game out there as well. Yeah. And you get a little spicy out there. I was doing a little bit of research. Maybe you've been censored twice for little oh, swear shit. words out you there. You know what? <laughs> I have a potty mouth. Like, so my boss used to tease me. He said, Sarah, and we've, I've been friendly with him for years. He's like, everyone thinks you're the good girl from Iowa. And I'm like, but that's the first mistake. Anyone that actually knows me knows I, I, I'm not proud of this. And my parents don't allow it still. And I have to correct myself when I'm around my kids or my parents, but I swear. And when I swear, the worst part of me is it's knee jerk to swear a second time. So I say the first word, I hear it, get frustrated at myself and say the second word. So yes, I have been censored. And so maybe in the control room, they know it's coming. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of the the recent times, or maybe the most recent time that I I think you were censored was you were talking about the government shutdown. And, uh, you know, what you had to say was so powerful. I also found it on your Instagram. Uh, You said, I want to see Congress not get paid when a government gets shut down. You know, how convenient to make decisions about people not having money or food on the table when it doesn't affect your own table or your own pay. And so what what is it about the government shutdown and and Congress and this issue that gets you so worked up? Well, there's a a thousand things that upsets me specifically about Congress. It's probably the branch I have the most beef with because I you watch and they're rarely and I'm not going to both sides because I don't think it's equivalent on both sides. But this is not unique to one side. They are there are people in their pocket constantly. So even when the polls show where the American public is, rarely are our elected representatives, our voice and our vote reflected in the legislation. So it's better politically for them to have us divided and to run on those divided topics to keep winning reelections than to solve the problem. So I am irate because as a pure like my constitution, how I live, the integrity my parents planted was you don't go in there and say you're going to do something and not fight every step of the way for it. They never should have come out of their offices when they were trying to pick a house speaker. They would get frustrated, come soundbite, go home and sleep in their beds. There are people dying in wars around the country and no aid could be passed. If you are going to do the job, you make sure all your colleagues stay there until your decision's made. You don't get paid when you shut the government down. You have the same health benefits as everyone else because these Ameri- the American people that are hurting the most are the lowest socioeconomically, and you live in a very convenient place. I have a privileged life, too, to talk about it and then go about your merry day and wake up the next day. Some people have nowhere to sleep. They have no food. They can't help their kids. There's no mental health. We're having, you know, people on the streets turn to opioids and things because they're not taking medications they're supposed to, so they're self-medicating. It's a complicated snowball. And so when I look at these decisions and this coverage, I think about those people and I say, how dare you? Like you are toying with lives right now and making it a soundbite for your reelection. It's disgusting. Do you ever hear after some of these episodes from people in power from leaders who you may have reached with with kind of your ire or your message? No, I, in fact, I, you, I never feel like the one anyone's checking on because there are people with more, uh, I wouldn't say extreme, but they, they go one way or the other consistently and stay there. I'm, I'm a, a idea first. I don't have a party loyalty. I'm an independent. I grew up in a conservative family. I definitely veered and I remain pretty far left on all the social issues, the environment and everything. But when it comes to the nuances of government spending and immigration and things, I actually do veer more towards the center. And so I don't, 
if you point at certain people, I'll tell you what they're going to say before they've even channeled it because it's a partisan take. And I, that part disgusts me because the system is limiting in this country. And I think we need to actually use our heads, think through it, and then have a response. And so because I can fall different ways, no one quite knows, you know, like they, they're not waiting for me. They want a soundbite from Whoopi. They want a soundbite from Joy. Understandably, those are icons. But I also think it pays because they, you kind of know what they're going to say. And they, people don't know what I'm going to say. Well, and for all of us, I think on the other side of that is pay attention to what your elected leaders are doing and make sure we vote, right? Yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. You mentioned Joy. You mentioned Whoopi. You've you know, interviewed some amazing individuals. You sit and you are among amazing individuals on The View. Who has inspired you the most and, and why? Well, so someone dating way back to before I was ever at The View would be a Meredith Vieira. Mm. She was someone I had the honor and privilege of meeting at the Today Show when she came over. I had already been a fan watching her on shows like The View that I had watched um, her career from news before that. The part I loved the most was she knew when to take a break. She knew when her career didn't define her. She wanted, she needed to stop to have kids. Not everyone has to do that, but the admiration I had for women fighting for a spot at the table. She was one of those trendsetters. She pioneered, she was at the top of her game and she still knew her North Star was family. And I feel the exact same way. So she did it once and then, you know, for whatever reason she left again, her husband battles MS. She has all these different storylines. Meredith never loses sight of what matters, even with the lure of power, uh, money, access. She knows, like she has a very centered constitution. And I think it's more her humanity I admire than her professional career, because her professional career was always second to her humanity. Yeah. And that's got to be hard in a world where you are under the spotlight, quite literally and figuratively, where people have expectations of you, you know, to remain humble and to be that authentic individual that you've talked about. That has to be hard. Well, I don't run into it as much. I think, um, you know, I think people that have their moorings, it's very natural to do that because if you're grounded and you know what matters, you're not going to float away. Yeah. But I didn't realize how rare that was. And it's not just in this business. It's the lure of uh, temptation, whatever your temptation is. And people, yeah, I think that's ultimately the profound riddle of life is to figure out where you were always supposed to center and make sure you keep checking back in and coming back. But Meredith was... Uh, uh, rare in that regard. And sometimes I think people are excused in this business because the bigger the celebrity, the biggest, the bigger the star, you almost say, well, they've earned it. But no one earns the abuse of power. The right to be a jerk. The insincere. Yeah, the the condescension, the rudeness, the, and Meredith is one of the handful of people I met that showed me, no, no, we don't compromise on what matters. And yet I can still play in that same game and win. And that was just like, whoa. So there is because there were times along the way where I thought I'm not cut out for this because I'm not, you know, there, there were as recently as before I came to The View, I had gone to them and said, you know, I, I've had a great time and I'm really honored you gave me this opportunity. But it was more of a correspondence spot, fun pieces that fit my brand, but never what I wanted to do. And so I kind of knew it was time to throw in the towel. And I'd already filled in on The View, but they weren't offering me that, uh, or I hadn't heard yet. And I said, I cannot be grateful enough. You took a chance on me. 
But I remember thinking, if this is what I have to do to stay on TV, this isn't worth it. Mm. Like, I don't like this job. Mm -hmm. And so that was really hard. You have, you know how they say you got to know when to fold them. I was knowing that it was time. And then luckily enough with The View, they had already been, what I did not know is they were already courting me to join them. That was a game changer. But I was ready to say, there's a thousand things I'd love to do. I'd love to teach. I'd love to work with Ocean uh, Conservancy. I'd love to do all these things. Why am I spinning my wheels as I start to hate what I do? And that was going to be a pivot. Yeah. Well, you have to find what brings you joy. You know, yeah. knowing it's not always going to be joyful. There are going to be times when you're going to be fighting and you're going to be frustrated, but ultimately you're filling your cup through the work that you're doing. When you and I spoke a couple of weeks ago, you talked about Whoopi Goldberg and you talked about her mom. Whoopi's mom, I never had the, the I was never lucky enough to meet her. But when you meet someone like Whoopi, who is so grounded in themselves, you wonder, like, where did it come from? Whoopi makes sense when you hear stories about her mom. And some of the sagest advice, because I would say Whoopi was the person that, I mean, to know Whoopi knew my name, there are days it still hits me and I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, like she knew who I was. And from, I don't know what I did to deserve it, but she took me under her wing immediately in ways that I was like, I think she's confusing me for someone. Like, we don't know, why is she doing? So sitting next to her, she's become my confidant in like really anything. Like today I wasn't feeling well and I was turning to her and she was giving me advice on like what you should, you know, do this, do that. With its kids, a life thing, you know, it's always her. And I remember she told a story that ended up hitting me really hard. Whoopi always has an answer. You know, uh, I, I can sometimes indecisively spin. Whoopi's just like grounded, locked, loaded, and ready to answer you. And now I understand. Her mom would say to her repeatedly, she tells a story on air of this, some situation. And she turns to her mom, like so many people do, to moms and other people to reassure them. And she says, mom, what should I do? And she's like, you know, you know, that answer's in there. Listen to that. Listen to her. And I remember the power of being like, we can do that. Like, that's an, wow, that's an option. Why have I spent so much time looking out here when it was always in there? And now I hear her voice saying, her recounting of her mom, it's in there, listen to her. And it it replays in my head and I've given that advice. And so I sometimes tell Whoopi, I'm like, your mom lives on and her wisdom does too. Because the amount of times I've told people or shared that nugget of wisdom is endless. And do you find yourself doing that today with your kiddos? I'm kind of not quite there yet. But one thing I do do that's kind of in that vein is my daughter will off. My daughter's a people pleaser and I worry because you start to see yourself and you wonder if the same bad parts of that are coming, you know, and Sandra will say, well, mama, I want what you want. And I'm like, well, I want to know what Sandra wants. I'm not going to tell you what I, I want to know what you want. What do you want in there? Which one's your favorite? And she'll keep doing it. it it's sometimes hard for her to answer what she wants. And so I, I'm finding ways to interpret that into what I'm dealing with. And it, it's, it's powerful. I hope my kids learn much earlier than I did. And you have three kiddos, three of them. Yes. And they're pretty close together in age. Yes, they are seven, five, and four. They're close together in age. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So how do you do that? You know, I think you find as a mom, so much of who you are is is your kiddos, making sure that they're happy, that their needs are met, that they're fulfilled. And sometimes we forget about ourselves and all of that. But how do you do that with a life that is so 
jam-packed. You know, you talked about your day from the very beginning to, you know, collapsing probably at night, having survived the day. You know, but but how do you how do you balance it? And let's talk about that word balance. Yes. You know, from our conversation, I hate that word balance Mm -hmm. because I don't think it's an achievable goal. I don't think there's a balance. And I always tell myself, as long as I lean to the North Star, always at the end of the day, that will guide me. And the North Star is my family and what I constitute as meaning the most. It's not just your family. It's the right decisions. You know, when you know something's out there and there's an opportunity and you check in with that gut, that answer's in there you know, you have to keep that centered. With the kids, I'm lucky because I have a very, um, my my husband, Max, since day one, I had postpartum with two of my kids, first and third. He was an active on the job dad. He was eager to be a dad, but there were times where I still feel guilt from those early days where if Max had not thrown himself in, in a way that the generation of our dads didn't, I don't know, I really just don't know what my life would have looked like because I, through my pregnancies that were very tough mentally, not physically, which is a blessing too. It wasn't medically, but it was mentally. And then a lot of the aftermath of adjusting as a perfectionist, that first one rocked me to my core, um, that lack of control. But uh, Max participates, we're lucky enough to have childcare because we both work. So during the working day, we have someone. But I don't think... I do it any differently than anyone else. It's all relative. When we had one, I was overwhelmed. And I remember asking my friend Paula Ferris, who used to be on The View, and she was on weekends. I said, how do you do it with three? And she's like, well, we had one, and we thought, we don't have any time. And then we had two and realized we had time with one. And then we had a third and realized we had time with two. So I realized that the journey is hard no matter what you have. Like, sometimes people will tell me, we only have one. I say, and it's really hard, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> so I don't think there's a balance. It's chaos. Um, I think leaning into we're doing the best we can because my husband copes sometimes saying, I wish we had more space in between. I wish we, I was like, we can do this all night. Like there's a lot of things I wish, but this is what we have and it's flying by. So we need to embrace the screaming, the yelling, the tantrums, the fits and just go with it. And I'm from four kids, but my husband, his he has a half brother who's seven years older than him. He's not used to any of the chaos of the dynamics of family. So I always tell him, just hold my hand and trust me on this. This is normal. It's just not familiar. And it's going to be a lot of fun and packed with a lot of fun memories when you look back on all of it. You know, yes. Posting a lot is that, so I have four kiddos posting on, <gasps> on, yep. Oh, you have four? What are the ages? Well, today they are 25, 23, 20, and 17. So three boys and a daughter. And I consider... Beautiful spread. Beautiful spread. I, You know, I <laughs> planned them all around my TV news contracts. So I had one year to be big and pregnant, one year to get yeah. my my body back and one year yeah. to decide whether I wanted to to pursue that next opportunity. So they were all planned out. But um, but, you know, to your point, you know, I have these these uh, kind of glimpses of memories. Oh, I remember when and the zoo. And I remember the third child throwing up on the security belt as we were going to get on an airplane. Oh. <laughs> I mean, there are some things that you'll never forget. <laughs> but when you're in the midst of all of that chaos that you're talking about, 
you know, posting on social media, you know, those are my memories. Like I remember those moments because they come up to me in my, in my Facebook memories. So you got to just jump right in and embrace every moment because it does, it goes by so quickly. And I feel that I think starting later, cause my first baby was at 38. Mm-hmm. I, I was so settled as Sarah, just not knowing if there'd ever be more than Sarah yeah. that I had a, I was wrapped around who I was pretty well in a way that I don't know if I would have been younger, but I also really grasped the gift because I kind of faced those years where I thought maybe no matter how much I want this, this isn't going to be what I get. And how does that look? So I not only grateful, but then I also know how fast it goes. Like it's gone fast from day one. At times I was so grateful it did. And then other times you stop and you're like, they're good and bad. It's going to fly by. Yeah. Yeah. When did curiosity become an important part of your life and your career? You have a podcast about curiosity. When when did that pop up as, as really? Pri- and I, I love what you talk about, about what you're what you're curious about. I think, you know, that yeah. is such an important characteristic. So curiosity follows me like as, to my earliest memories that my parents you know, uh, regurgitate to me. My mom once said to me, I talked and I talked and I talked, which isn't necessarily curious. That would be listening. But I was talking a lot and telling her things. And she said, oh my gosh, Sarah, will you just like, why do you talk so much? And I was like, I don't know. God just gave me so much conversation. (laughs) And that was the little girl my parents described. I I love, at that age, I don't know how much this part came out, but pretty early when people would ask me how to describe myself, the first word that was easy to describe was curious. I love people. I love that there are depths of stories in every one of them. There are equalizing traumas in every one of them. And trauma doesn't just mean severe abuse or something. It can mean a divorced parent. It can be a lost pet. It can be We are all so much alike that I was thirsty to learn the ways in which I was just like everyone else. Like I needed to feel a part of the world. And when you see yourself reflected in other people, you feel seen. (laughs) And I think that's where it always came from, is that I learned that if you sit with someone long enough, whether it's on an airplane, grocery store, bar stool, whatever it is, you're going to go deep and you're going to find things that you're like, oh my gosh. And that's what I was always digging for, the nugget. I want to get interested here. And then you just lose track of time. Right, right. That uh, that curiosity drives you. And that's where the conversation comes in, follow-up questions and, and learning more yep. about, about those individuals. You know, em- empowerment is is also something I think that, that as I've listened to, to what you've had to say, uh, it's something you've discovered. It's something you've embraced. It's something you use today with your voice and, and, and with others in your life. You know, talk about what empowerment means to you. Empowerment is is especially important, I think. It's important for everyone, but as someone that was always busy externally pleasing people, being empowered and knowing whether it's an answer or a skill or a competence that it was always in there was a really crucial bridge to take back to me. It's the only way to survive. But I found that when I started looking at myself like I would my best friend, I was more empowered. And by that, I mean, I can find the beauty and the strengths in almost anyone you put in front of me. I will connect on something and it can be simple, but once we're in on that, there's more questions. And I can tell you how badass you are and all the things you've done. And I rarely could see it in myself. And a friend said to me once, treat yourself like you treat me. 
And all of a sudden, I literally would have a conversation with myself. I'd be like, I, I, I'm not even great at this, and they haven't written back. And I'd hear myself going, no, you are good enough. <laughs> like, I literally busted out into what I do for everyone else so easily and so naturally, but couldn't do it for myself. And now that's been the muscle I've been flexing for a little while now, really trying to look at myself the way people who love me do, just, the, just like I do to people I love. And that's been probably the most empowering the the best tool for empowerment I've found. You have the answer inside you. You just have to kind of let it come out and, and, and really yeah. embrace it. Wonderful. Well, I have truly enjoyed the time we have spent together. Sarah, thank you so much for your positivity, your energy, and all of the insights uh, you've shared with us. Thank you so much for having me. I love someone with your track record of journalism, but also the fact that you're a mom of four. Yes. That was my like golden image. Yeah. And like to know that you're living that and doing all this. It, it Every mom that's a little further down the road, not in age, but yeah. in experience, I'm like, yes, there's more. Okay. <laughs> so thank you for all that you're doing. Yeah, for sure, Sarah. And real quickly, before we let you go, what's the best way for people to follow you? What are your channels on social media, podcasts, that sort? So I am Sarah Haynes everywhere. I'm Sarah Haynes, just at Sarah Haynes on Instagram. I don't check Twitter for mental reasons. Um, I have people that will report back if I need to like chime in or participate, but that one's not great for me. I'm on Facebook. All the, I don't have an official podcast. All of the things I do, the Just Curious, are through my social so I can have ownership on that. So anything you do, I do, it's through Instagram Reels, TikTok, things like that. Okay, well, lots of ways to follow you and to, to stay on top of all of the great things you're accomplishing. Sarah, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you so much. To hear more purpose-driven stories and learn more about Kane Communications Group, visit us at kanecomgroup.com. And if you know someone who has an empowering story, send us an email at insights at kanecomgroup.com.